You're listening to the Judicial Watch Weekly Update with Tom Finn. Hey everyone, Judicial Watch President Tom Fitton here with our weekly update on social media. Thank you for joining us as always. So much going on here in Washington, D.C., even at the, as we begin the Thanksgiving holiday week next week. Uh, we've got bad news out of Congress on funding government corruption, some good news out of Congress on January 6th transparency. Uh, I have updates about an important election integrity case in Georgia. I have an update about other Trump litigation, the abuse of him up in New York. Judicial Watch has new documents about the Biden White House cocaine scandal, new documents about the big, big government, big tech censorship of American citizens and other uh, abuses of citizens under the FBI, where the FBI under Biden, as you may recall, was targeting the Catholic Church. I've got some astonishing materials there. First up, I'm going to talk about the good news. Um, I'm back, first of all, right? I had uh, some uh, elbow surgery a few weeks ago, and uh, it's been a long, slow recovery. I'm still not able to use the arm completely and a little bit fatigued from the surgery, but you can see the scar. I don't know, if get the camera there. And a little bit of bruising here on the back of the arm, but it's, it's healing. And I appreciate all the good word and prayers and best wishes from you. Um, as I know many of you knew, I was um, undergoing surgery. Uh, but I'm back trying to keep up with the heavy lifting on behalf of the rule of law here on Judicial Watch. And as I said, good news, Speaker Johnson Mike Johnson, the new House Speaker, has finally begun the release of the January 6th videos. It's been uh, almost, what is it, 2023? I guess almost three years since January 6th, which the left has told us was the worst day in American history, uh, worse as bad or um, equal to 9-11 and the uh, attack on Pearl Harbor. And they didn't want to release the videos. Judicial Watch, as you know, uh, or you may know, sued under the common law right of uh, public access to government documents in federal court, the Capitol Hill police, and we've been stonewalled for years on that, fighting the Pelosi House or the Pelosi Congress, and then the McCarthy House, McCarthy Congress. Uh, who have stood uh, like a stone wall in the courthouse against transparency here. Now, Mike Johnson, uh, because he has separate authorities, just has begun the release of the videos outright. And I don't know how much of the videos are being withheld or what the process is because he's not doing it under the law. He's doing it at his discretion. We prefer he do it under law, but we're not going to complain in the sense that more transparency is always better. And I think we have a few of the videos up as, um, uh, because they were just released literally uh, just before I came on and started doing this report. Uh, they're widely available on the internet. I, I don't have the website, we probably put it below, but you can figure it out and you can now start looking at the January 6th videos yourself. And uh, this is something the left didn't want you to see. So I'm sure there's going to be some interesting information in there that uh, contradicts their narrative on January 6th and gives a full uh, picture of what happened that day, which is much more complicated than what they would have you believe. 
As you know, the only homicide victim on January 6th officially was Ashley Babbitt, who was uh, shot um, outrageously uh, by uh, Lieutenant Byrd, U.S. Capitol Police officer. Uh, Judicial Watch has done extensive investigations and will continue with some uh, additional work on that issue. Uh, But uh, we want the full truth about January 6th. So this video release is a big victory for transparency. Uh, Congratulations and thank you to Senator, excuse me, to Speaker Johnson for releasing the information and certainly uh, the pressure from the American people. Uh, Judicial Watch, as you know, has also been putting a lot of pressure on Speaker Johnson and the House generally to, to release this information. So we're glad he's done it. Now, there's other material that can be released as well in his discretion, in my view, uh, with respect to emails that the Capitol Hill Police Board had and disclosed to Judicial Watch, not the emails themselves, but in hiding them from us, they had to describe them to the court. And they describe emails internally about the January 6th um, event as it was happening, the preparation for it, and the email traffic was not only within the Capitol Hill Police and its administrative bo- uh, its administrative board that oversees it, which is appointed in part by uh, the Speaker, the President, and the, uh, or an appointee of the President, and an appointee of the Senate Majority Leader, who at the time was Mitch McConnell, to be clear. Uh, so it was Pelosi and McConnell's board, practically speaking. Um, and those emails show, uh, or the documents show, those emails were sent to a member of Congress or two, and we don't know who they were. Um, so what is the holdup on releasing that, in my view? So uh, this is Judicial Watch's approach. We always want transparency. This is a remarkable step towards transparency by Speaker Johnson on these January 6 videos. Uh, but uh, it's a necessary step. Is it going to be sufficient in the long run? I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, but uh, uh, kudos, uh, at least, and credit to uh, you, dear voter and citizen, for pressuring Congress to release this because it wouldn't have happened uh, without um, your, your uh, pushing it. And Speaker McCarthy had an opportunity to do exactly this type of uh, disclosure, which is to kind of make it widely available. He did make it available um, uh, to individual groups and and citizen citizen journalists and journalists to uh, uh, where they could go and look at the videos in the Capitol Hill complex or a Capitol Hill office building, I think. But that wasn't good enough, obviously. And then they stalled the release of the information, and Speaker Johnson promised, and he got it done. So you know. You often hear me criticize politicians for breaking their word, breaking their promise, and being against transparency, but in this case, it was, an, it was a good transparency move. Now, the bad news this week, also out of Speaker Johnson's office, is, uh, and I want to talk about it again, because the big media, uh, including uh, many conservative media, won't talk about it as, I think, bluntly as I will, is that uh, the Speaker Johnson Congress with the support of all but two Democrats and I think about 125 Republicans and about 95 Republicans opposed it. So it was 127 or 25 Republicans, 209 I think Democrats, all voted to fully fund 
the Biden administration for the next several months. And it's exactly the sort of thing that McCarthy would have done. It was disappointing that once again, there was this opportunity to use this continuing resolution, the need to quote, fund government, to achieve good public policy outcomes. And I don't mean just like, oh, we wanna change a law here or there. I mean, we wanna protect the Republic that's under attack from the Biden administration. We wanna defund the abuses of Trump. We wanna defund the censorship of tens of millions of Americans. We wanna defund the Biden border invasion. I don't know about you, but we can't wait. Our republic is tottering. Our republic is under attack through these abuses. And the Biden administration then gets full funding from this Republican-controlled House for the, their abuses of Trump. They're shepherding and allowing and helping illegal aliens. Not only um, once they get into the country, not only do they kind of stamp them in, but they literally move them with tax dollars into the interior of the United States, enabling the invasion. As I'll talk about later, there's this ongoing censorship of American citizens and uh, the Jack Smith abuse of Trump. Why is that being funded by Congress? And so the response we get often is, oh no, we're, this is gonna be, they just needed a little more time because uh, they want to get back to what they call regular order. Now, regular order under Congress is uh, their uh, is uh, their thinking is that individual appropriation uh, bills uh, by agency or combination of agencies should be the vehicle for getting these policy um, reforms or or addressing these emergencies. Really, right? And that assumes that Democrats are going to sign on to it. Enough. Obviously, they're not in the Senate. The Democrats control the Senate. So if they don't sign on to it and you're not willing to shut government down because you have no red lines that you're willing uh, to uh, allow the Biden administration to step over in order to, in exchange for government funding, then we're going to be at square one again. So my concern is that Speaker Johnson and too many House Republicans don't care about this enough, at least uh, in, in terms of willing to shut down the spigot for taxpayer funding of the abuse of American citizens, the invasion of America, and unbrazen un, un and unprecedented and widely abusive election interference and the violation of civil rights of Donald Trump and countless other Americans. In addition to uh, funding the Justice Department's cover-up of Joe Biden and his misconduct. He met with President Xi today, excuse me, not today, uh, Dictator Xi, I hate calling him President, uh, the, earlier this week. Did you hear uh, much of the media highlighting the fact that he was been compromised by this Chinese government, that he's supposedly representing us in meetings over? No. We, for all intents and purposes, Joe Biden was a foreign agent of China, the evidence shows, through his, funds, through his sons and his business relationships with the Chinese government entities. I mean, there's a real crisis here. So I don't know what Speaker Johnson's thinking here, 
I mean, if the plan is to address all these issues in the appropriations process and the appropriations bills, you know, you won't, quote, fund the Justice Department. The Justice Department will shut down unless they stop the abuse of Trump. Maybe that would be good. Maybe that would be the place where they're going to fight. But do you see any indication that they're willing to do that? So I encourage you once again to keep on calling Congress. 202-225-3121, 202-225-3121. And I know, you know, there's a Thanksgiving break. This shows you, well, I want to tell you what the House did. So they voted for the CR, this continuing resolution that just funds all things Biden in the Biden administration. Everything you don't like about the Biden administration, they funded fully, no reforms, no nothing. It was even worse than the last continuing resolution. And... Uh, and so that happened on Tuesday night. On Wednesday, they went home. They went home for Thanksgiving recess. Now, I know I love Thanksgiving. It's one of my favorite holidays. I don't get two weeks off or 10 days off for Thanksgiving. Do you get 10 days off for Thanksgiving? I don't. I mean, they couldn't even wait till Friday. They left on Wednesday, the week before Thanksgiving, they are next in session because they go, quote, travel on Monday. They're next in session on November 28th. So I think there's a crisis. Congress doesn't think it's a crisis. This abuse of Trump, this abuse of our system, Biden acting like a tyrant to try to jail his political opponent. Republicans seem to endorse it because they're funding it. That's the conclusion I have. And I think Speaker Johnson should be asked tough questions like that. And I, I've like I said, Speaker Johnson is a, is a conservative guy. He's got a, a great conservative record. Uh, but what happens is in leadership, you hear a, a, a kind of, there, there are these voices that are elevated. And many of them hate Trump. And kind of like the idea of him or those who support him being abused because they don't like him politically. And I'm talking Republicans. So the next time you hear a Republican complain about Biden administration policy, ask that Republican, why didn't you defund it when you had a chance? Why did you just vote to fully fund it? So in the meantime, Judicial Watch will continue its independent investigations. And Congress does, some, they're doing some good investigations, not nearly enough, given the current crisis. You know, we highlight it where we can. I've talked about Charles Grassley here and, and, and Speaker Jordan and Jim Comer. I mean, they're doing, they're doing some good work all of which is necessary, but it's woefully insufficient given the forces arrayed against our constitutional republic in terms of uh, the abuse of power, the corruption of Biden, the destruction of our nation through the border invasion, and the uh, mass abuse of our civil rights and violations of our First Amendment freedoms through the censorship regime. Not to mention the anti-American Marxism, communist revolutionary, critical race theory, DEI uh, menace throughout the Biden administration that's largely fully funded at this point. The misuse of tax dollars to snuff out unborn human beings, contrary to law, 
like in the Defense Department? I mean, we're investigating all that, but Judicial Watch, you know, we can't defund it. <laughs> we're not running Congress. <laughs> I can't impeach Biden. How's that impeachment going? They've had one hearing. One hearing! Even the number of hearings of Biden corruption has been woefully inadequate. There's a lot of work to be done. So I'm glad uh, Speaker Johnson released the January 6th videos, uh, but we never can stop being vigilant and demanding that uh, uh, a politician and a political leader do the right thing where and ever, wherever and whenever necessary. And that means, in my view, uh, taking a strong stance against the uh, creeping tyranny here in Washington, D.C. And uh, it's, it's not only here in Washington, D.C., it's up in New York. And I wanted to highlight the abuses of Trump because it's, it's, it's kind of a readily appearance in the news, and you're not getting the full picture from the anti-Trump media, is the um, Angoran, Judge Angoran up in New York City, who's running this kangaroo show trial against President Trump and his companies. Uh, at the behest of uh, fellow Democrat politician, Letitia James. Now, the judges up in New York are elected. So Judge Angoran is a Democrat politician who was elected as a judge. Now, that's the system of, and I'm not against the elections of judges, but we should recognize that when a judge is out of the control, as Judge Angoran is, where that's coming from. Well, he's an elected political official. So typically judges are supposed to keep that aside in the administration of justice. Judge Angoran has simply refused to do that through evidence of bias and his, and his ridiculing and targeting and abusing of Trump. And uh, President Trump is, uh, and his legal team have been uh, you know, fighting. Uh, it's, it's like being in a Soviet trial, right? I mean, the, the verdict is already for a foregone conclusion in many respects. Indeed, it technically was in terms of findings by fraud even before the trial commenced that Judge Angoran found. Bogus, bogus findings of fraud, to be clear. Now, at the end of the case, uh, Judge, um, excuse me, the Trump attorneys filed a motion for mistrial. And uh, you may recall Judge Angoran also had a gag order or two that he imposed on Trump to prevent Trump from criticizing his misconduct. Completely anti-constitutional. I, I, there are laws that are unconstitutional, but then there are also actions and laws that are anti-constitutional, right? And we're in the era of anti-constitutional uh, attacks on our system of government. I mean, this is so far beyond normal discussions in terms of what's appropriate in the judiciary. And uh, President Trump, and I'm going to read a little bit from his motion for mistrial. I, I posted it on Twitter, and uh, that's the value of social media because most people, if you're relying on the newspaper, the newspapers are never, and I say the newspaper, I guess no one reads newspapers anymore. Uh, news articles rarely fully cover or give a full briefing uh, to um, a legal argument like Trump is making or, or some of the facts he's laying out here. And to be fair, it's not because 
their bias, although that's true in part, is because they only have so many, so much space. Well, we have a little bit more space on the internet these days, and we're trying to take advantage of it here at Judicial Watch. As I say in the tweet, I've carefully reviewed Trump's motion for a mistrial in the unprecedented proceeding before Democratic Judge Angoran. Uh, the brief lays out a disturbing pattern of biased misconduct and unusual and threatening behavior by the court. And the, uh, their brief opens up with the following, uh, the Trump brief. The Constitution guarantees defendants a fair and impartial trial. Here, in an unprecedented case commanding worldwide interest and attention, it is imperative that nothing compromise that guarantee and thereby undermine public confidence in our legal system. While counsel are subject to a gag order apparently imposed to impede the issues herein presented from becoming public, it is a fundamental precept of American jurisprudence that sunlight is the best disinfected. Indeed, the assumption that respect for the judiciary can be won by shielding judges from publishing criticism wrongly appraises the character of American opinion, and an enforced silence, however limited solely in the name of preserving the dignity of the bench, would probably engender resentment, suspicion, and contempt much more than it would enhance respect. Well, what they're pointing out there is that Angoran essentially threatened them about filing a motion for mistrial because the mistrial would have to, quote, talk about Angoran's misconduct, which in theory would be in violation of the gag orders. That's why they're using that language there. While the court has restricted public criticism of itself on the issues herein presented in a series of unconstitutional gag orders entered sua sponte, sua sponte means on the court's Trying to, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know the technical version of it. My general understanding of it is on the court's own power without being asked. They just did it. He just did it. The Supreme Court instructs that the operations of the courts and the judicial conduct of judges are matters of utmost public concern. Moreover, there can be no doubt of the public perception of bias in this case. Even commentators who are politically opposed to President Trump have noticed the biased nature of the proceedings and the astonishing departure from ordinary standards of impartiality. And then they quote a story from Andrew McCarthy, a writer at National Review, former prosecutor. And the quote they have from Andy is, the case against the former president lacks victims, so Tish James and Arthur Angoran are inventing some. Angoran keeps cutting Trump and his lawyers off by insisting that he has already decided Trump A, committed fraud, B, overvalued his assets, and B, C, cannot be insulated by the disclaimer in his FSCs advising counterparties to do their own due diligence in evaluating asset value. So that's kind of the heart of the dispute here. The appearance of bias threatens both defendants' rights, meaning Trump's and his companies and those others uh, and his family being targeted here, and the integrity of the judiciary as an institution. As developed herein, in this case, the evidence of apparent and actual bias is tangible and overwhelming. Such evidence, coupled with an unprecedented departure from standard judicial procedure, has tainted these proceedings, and a mistrial is warranted. Specifically, the court's own conduct, coupled with the principal law clerk, Allison Greenfield's unprecedented role in the trial and, excessive, and extensive public partisan activities, would cause even a casual observer to question the court's partiality, as only the grant of a mistrial can salvage what is left of the rule of law. And um, the, the, the brief goes on to highlight the role of Ms. Greenberg in the trial. And evidently, she's sitting literally right next to 
Judge Angoran. I think I posted a picture. So that's the picture they posted from the brief. So that's that's the uh, clerk sitting right next to her. Now, is that normal in New York? I don't know. Uh, I, I haven't been to many court hearings in New York. I don't think I've ever been to a court hearing in New York. We're usually down here in D.C. So maybe that's the typical way a clerk sits next to a judge. But uh, it looks unusual to me. And they accuse the judge of allowing her to co-judge the case. And they say the clerk in the brief, uh, there's evidence that the clerk is a Democratic Party activist contributor. And uh, she, uh, which is, uh, she made contributions in violation of the law in terms of the uh, the large volume of contributions. The court, this is what they say about it. This court has also impermissibly exceeded the discretion in granting the principal law clerk unprecedented status and input into these proceedings and restricted the speech of anyone who seeks to comment on this status, input and or perceived partisan bias. This court has, during the special proceeding, all pretrial proceedings and since the trial began, allowed his principal law clerk to pre- preside on the bench with him to his right-hand side. This arrangement is depicted in the below photographs published by the Getty Images and the Associated Press, and that's what we showed you earlier. The brief also accuses the judge, and this is really interesting, I hadn't heard this before, of improper commentary and extrajudicial activity touching on the case. So evidently he runs some type of um, alumni newsletter for his high school and uh, some folks have noted he posted some pictures of himself exercising whatever, uh, showing that he's buff and such. That wasn't necessarily the ethical issue. The ethical issue, in my view, is his behavior on the bench, plus the uh, what he seems to be doing here, which I didn't know about previously. What he's been doing is posting links to stories critical of Trump and the witnesses and obviously taking strong stances on the case in his pers- in his capa- in his capacity as a judge. Well, I don't even know if it's the capacity as a judge. Is it his personal capacity? I mean, ethically, he's responsible for that type of behavior. I've I've never seen anything like that. A judge just posting a bunch of stories, you know, that uh, uh, make put put the defendant that's currently before him in a bad light and include commentary and description of his cases that, you know, have no business uh, being promoted or pushed by a judge. This is what they say about that. The court has contravened the code of judicial conduct and created the appearance of impropriety through publicly commenting on a proceeding before him. The court in his capacity as a Wheatley School school alumnus, I guess that's his high school, has publicly posted links in the Wesley in the Wheatley newsletter he maintains to articles dispar, disparaging excuse me parties and counsel including Eric Trump President Trump Miss Haba who's one of the lawyers and Cushman and Wakefield and covering his own decisions in derogation of the code um, which the site is a judge should not make any public comment about a pending or impending proceeding in any court within the United States or its territories. So is posting stories of public comment? I would argue it probably is. Uh, and then they go on to list. I'm not going to read all the stories they posted. I mean, he posted a story that President Trump lost an appeal um, about his contempt orders against 
witnesses. Really strange things for him to be posting. Wildly inappropriate in my view. And then the brief also accuses the judge of the of bias in the gag order, which was an unprecedented, and I think, violative of the Constitution attack, anti-constitutional attack on Trump. The gag orders and the enforcement thereof reveal the court has christened itself camera stellata, judge, jury, and executioner, proceeding, quote, sua sponte, to act against President Trump in violation of the Constitution, the judiciary law, and the First Department rules. And that's state and, and judicial rules in New York. The Star Chamber approach is particularly indefensible when the gag orders actually shield the court itself from public criticism and perceived bias. This court's efforts to silence counsel from objecting to and creating a record of what anyone could observe publicly taking place in the courtroom during the trial thus painfully augment the appearance of impropriety. So the judge didn't want um, uh, Trump's lawyers raising for the record that the first principal clerk, would forget, is that the title? I think that's the title. His, his top clerk sitting right next to him was engaged in this back and forth with him in a way that was distracting in the trial and raised questions about who was running the show there. I mean, the law is the elected judge is supposed to be running the show, not an unelected bureaucrat who works for him. Now, Judge Angoran says, I've got an absolute right to consult with my clerks any way I want, and you can't second guess it. And I don't, I don't think that's true. I mean, he certainly has discretion there, but obviously uh, there's a line that uh, could be um, uh, stepped over by Angoran. And sure enough, they're complaining about the gag orders in this mistrial brief. And the appellate court, thankfully, uh, an appellate court judge above Angoran uh, temporarily lifted the gag order. And in the, in the, in the filing, uh, they, she wrote, I think it was a she, the judge, the gag orders um, were lifted and the judge said, um, considering the constitutional statutory rights at issue, an interim stay is granted. So they kind of said to the judge that, uh, Judge Angoran, you know, there are constitutional issues to what you've done here and we're going to have to figure it out. So big victory for Trump in that regard. So there you have it. Now is Judge Angoran going to Give Trump the mistrial ruling he seeks? I don't think so. Now they could have, I'm assume I presume they could appeal that. But I, I didn't know some of this, right? Uh, certainly about Judge Angoran's activities. And I kind of was vaguely aware about the weirdness of uh, the clerk and the judge sitting there together and kind of seemingly co-judging. Uh, but to see um, some more significant descriptions in the brief is enlightening. And I don't know if this mistrial proceeding is going to proceed, uh, this mistrial case, excuse me, uh, uh, request is going to be granted. I suspect it won't be. And I don't even know legally, and this is where you know, the lawyers can all opine, and they all pretend to know everything about, I just love how lawyers online tend to know everything about the law, no matter their limited expertise. Uh, or limits on practice. They seem to pretend to know everything about the law. So I'm interested in the lawyers online who seem to know everything about the law telling us whether they think this mistrial request is going to proceed. 
or be successful. Uh, but uh, it's, as I noted in the beginning, uh, the, the outcome of the mistrial, uh, whether there's a mistrial or not, is, is only part of the issue. The brief itself, I think, powerfully describes the, uh, the, the kangaroo-style court, uh, the kangaroo-style court operation that's going on there up in New York against Trump. And this is an important case. A, Trump is a, a candidate for president of the United States, the number one candidate under the polls right now. He's a former president of the United States. And it's clear to me that New York Democrats are abusing the law. This is an unprecedented case being brought against him uh, to try to rig the election for Joe Biden or retaliate against him for his First Amendment speech by destroying his company. Because if, if they get their way, they could end his company, practically speaking. What better way to, to uh, strike a blow for Joe Biden's campaign than to destroy the personal wealth, which is significant, of his number one opponent? As I've said previously, and I think it's worth reminding, that how is it you judge whether there's something legit going on in terms of charging President Trump? Well, first of all, I think you see, has there ever been charges like this before? Are the charges novel? Is the law, you know, even if it's a technical violation of the law, they've ever been brought charges like this before? Uh, Has the law ever been interpreted this way to apply to the conduct of ish- at issue and that's not and and you'll see in virtually well actually every targeting of Trump by democrat politicians here in Washington DC in Fulton County up in New York City don't forget you got Soros back prosecutor Alvin Bragg trying to jail Trump as well you'll find that it's a novel application of the law that's never been pursued before and arguably is unconstitutional anti-constitutional etc and just purely retaliatory so these aren't cases like Trump was caught you know uh, doing something obviously illegal like robbing a bank in plain sight no these are he was engaged in first amendment disputes of elections so let's try to jail him for that they're arguing with him about valuations of properties, as Andy McCarthy has said, when there have been no complaints about such valuations of properties. And everyone was happy in all those transactions, et cetera, et cetera. This is the worst corruption in American history, the targeting of Trump, the abuse of Trump. It's been ongoing from the moment, I would argue, probably before he ran for president or announced officially, and it continues to this day. So, so that's terrible corruption up in New York. Who's running New York? Why is the Attorney General's office getting federal funds if that's what they're using it for? Right? Is Congress going to shut down funding for the Attorney General of New York? The civil rights abusers up in New York? They should. We've got a lot to get into here. Let me move on. 
So we had asked for records. You may recall there was a document that was leaked out of the Richmond FBI office, and it turns out there was more than just the Richmond FBI that was involved in this, uh, showing that they were targeting, uh, quote, traditionalist Catholics with a spy operation. They were trying to recruit spies against these Catholics in parishes, trying to target priests and such because they think traditional Catholics are to be uh, our national security or crime threats. I'm not going to belabor or provide a lot of detail about what they thought. It was obviously uh, a wild abuse. And as soon as it came out, the, the FBI, you know, uh, as soon as it became public, the FBI quickly pulled the material and uh, with the idea that the, uh, they wouldn't be pursuing these issues. Well, I'm not confident that's the case. Uh, but we wanted to highlight um, and pursue this issue because it was such a grave threat to our First Amendment liberties, which include, obviously, um, our religious liberties. I mean, should you have to worry about an FBI spy sitting next to you in church when you go to Mass on Sunday? And obviously, the standards and the attacks they're using to target the Catholics who were, uh, quote, traditionalist, can easily be applied to our, I'm Catholic, to our Christian brothers uh, who are Protestants, those who are more conservative in orientation. So this is a danger to the whole church. And so we work with CatholicVote.org, which is a, uh, a, a group out in, um, I don't know exactly their headquarters. I have it in my head there in Illinois. But they're a community of patriotic Americans who believe that the timeless truths of the Catholic faith are good, are good for America. It makes it its mission to inspire every Catholic in America to live out the truths of our faith in public life. So they're basically uh, promoting Catholic values through the political process and that Catholics should participate in politics the way others do. Uh, we received records in response to an April 23rd lawsuit we filed with Catholic Vote, their civic action arm, against the FBI after they failed to respond to a request for records about this intelligence memo targeting, quote, radical traditionalist Catholics. Now, as I said earlier, it was back in the first part of the year that this document was leaked and it revealed the targeting of Catholics who adhere to traditional beliefs on abortion and other cultural issues. The leaked document has been condemned by federal and state officials as well as clergy, but you know we want to know uh, what was going on that required this, in my view, after the fact condemnation. The new records include a February 8th email with the subject line media request FBI document cites SPLC, which is the nasty anti-conservative smear operation of Southern Poverty Law Center from the FBI's National Press Office alerting FBI officials regarding media inquiries. We have inquiries from the Washington Examiner to Daily Signal, which is run by our friends at the Heritage Foundation, about an article written by Dan Blank. It references a January intelligence product from the Richmond Field Office. After speaking with um, SC Goodwater, I am alerting all of you so we can get a copy of that actual document and hear any recommendations on how to respond. I'm attaching a cut and paste of the article. And so the reaction was rather panicked. Um, let me see, there's a fun thing here. Ryan Young, the executive assistant director of the intelligence branch, replies to one of the emails 
He says, not a good look. Real frustrating when it is self-inflicted. I'll be back in town on Wednesday. We can look into best next steps. So it was essentially uh, uh, the government or the FBI retreated on that. There's the email. I'll be back in town on Wednesday. So I think if it was uh, released on February 13th, I think on February, I think that was the date it was pulled as well. Yeah, on February 10th it was pulled. The intel piece has been withdrawn. After seven months of delay and more to come, Joe Biden's FBI remains committed to one thing, covering up their un-American spying on Catholic citizens, said former Congressman Hulskamp, Ph.D. senior advisor for Catholic Vote. Uh, Tim Hillscamp, by fully withholding more than 200 pages of public documents. So I'm talking about the documents we got. Tim is talking about the documents we didn't get. The Biden administration is more interested in hiding the truth than ending this unconstitutional witch hunt of Catholics and other faithful Americans. And I highlight the how the FBI launched a vicious spy effort against Catholics and sought to spy on parishioners as they sat in church pews. These records show top FBI officials were panicked in response about their domestic spying abuse leaking out. So this lawsuit continues. We may fight to get these other documents that are being withheld, but this is serious stuff. I mean, the FBI is abused to target Trump, and uh, they're not satisfied with targeting Trump. They're expanding it to include uh, folks who try to go to church every week. That's, that's what this is in essence about. And they were, it looks like senior leadership were a little bit horrified about it. Uh, one of the concerns we have is that they suggested it was limited to Richmond and other documents I think since then or reporting or whistleblowing since then has suggested it was broader. It included other offices. And we know generally that the um, national security establishment, the deep state national security establishment, deems conservative, think, uh, conservative activists, parents, parishioners, a threat to their agenda. And they're using the awful powers, and I don't mean awful meaning bad, I mean awful meaning powerful powers of the government to target these citizens. And this is why I get upset that when, despite all of this, the FBI gets full funding for another two months. They vote to give money for the FBI to get their new headquarters that's going to cost billions. I don't know if the FBI can be redeemed. I, I think that culture is just so riven with corruption and abuse and arrogance. Same goes for the Justice Department. I, I don't know if it can be redeemed. So I'll keep you abreast as things come along here. But some, um, uh, some big information about what the FBI's top officials' reactions to crafting uh, were to this issue. I didn't see much in the way of horror. I saw, oh man, you know, this looks terrible. What are we going to do? No outrage.
speaking, I'm going to stick, stick to the theme here. Speaking of government abuse, we had some stories out last week or two weeks ago. The uh, Congress had gotten some uh, documents about um, the spy, excuse me, the censorship effort of Americans. And Judicial Watch has been closely investigating this, uh, several lawsuits. We have other, do- well, I'll talk about some of the documents we're getting. And uh, Speaker Jordan's, excuse me, ha- I guess he wanted to be Speaker. Chairman Jordan's committee issued a report highlighting how uh, the Department of Homeland Security, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, was working with this outside group, the Election Integrity Project and Partnership, excuse me, and other entities uh, to uh, run operations to censor Americans. And what was happening is this outside group was with the approval and uh, by some reports, by the, oper- by, by the reports analysis and testimony, it was the idea of this government official, uh, the CISA operation, to have this outside entity that CISA would have a hand in, you know, uh, basically the, the, a puppeteer for this censorship. So it was this, what they call JIRA, J-I-R-A. Uh, I'm not sure what it stands short, what it's short for, but it was a system through which uh, those seeking censorship of citizens uh, could uh, submit, quote, tickets, and then the tickets would be forwarded to Twitter and Facebook, et cetera. Now, CISA had a hand in this, not only running it, but having access to the information. Now, in the Jordan report, they note that one of the targets of this, what is in, in, let's be, let's be direct about it. The most significant censorship in American history in terms of the reach and volume and abuse. One of the targets is little old me and you and Judicial Watch because if you follow me, you're targeted too because you're. They don't want you to see some of our stuff. And, of course, most of the stuff I'm talking about, especially on Twitter where I was targeted, I have an account on Twitter, Judicial Watch has an account on Twitter. But mostly, if those of you who follow my account, it's mostly stuff about what Judicial Watch is doing or Judicial Watch-style analysis. And in this case, it was election analysis. Now, it's no surprise I was the target here because it's happened before. California, for instance, separately, their Secretary of State's office took down a YouTube video or caused the YouTube video, our weekly update, like this, where I was talking about election integrity issues. They were taken down. The video was taken down at the request of the government. We sued over that. That lawsuit's ongoing. So that material was released by Jordan, the Department of Homeland Security, I think... um, the Homeland Security Committee also had the same documents, so I don't know if they were talking to each other, but they all released the same documents. So that's a significant development. So we have documents about this cybersecurity issue because we've been suing about it uh, against uh, the Department of Homeland Security and CISA. We had filed a lawsuit back in... Well, I don't know when we filed it. We began asking questions back in 2022. And the records we found, 63 pages, uh, show the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency 
um, which is a division of the Department of Homeland Security. So it's a sub-agency of the Department of Homeland Security. So this CISA was set up, uh, ironically, under the Biden, excuse me, under the Trump administration. So the deep state was all scared by the left-wing attacks on Trump. Uh, they bought into their theory that Trump stole the election by working with the Russians, and the Russians interfered in our election and rigged it for Trump. All false. And all those who were promoting it knew it to be false. Yet the uh, folks running DHS panicked and created this cybersecurity entity supposedly to make sure there would be no foreign malign influence on our elections. And what did they do? They targeted Americans. They targeted me. They show government involvement in this election integrity pro uh, partnership program to bring pressure on Google, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, Pinterest, Reddit, and other platforms to censor, quote, disinformation. Now, disinformation is big brother speak for information they don't like. And if something is factually wrong, no government has business, even if it is, quote, disinformation in the sense it's factually wrong. Government has no business seeking to delete it and censor it. And especially in these public policy debates, what's factually wrong and right is a, often a political question and depends on your politics, your ideology, the reliance on which experts you find credible versus which experts you don't. Think of these debates on COVID, on the climate scam, on Russia, you name it. So we had filed this lawsuit, it was a major lawsuit, and we got these documents. The Election Integrity Partnership, I want to tell you about this because this was the vehicle, the cutout, that the government used to censor Americans. It was created in July of 2020, around the time, you know, a little bit after CISA was created, just before the presidential election. According to our friends at Just the News, the consortium is comprised of four member organizations, Stanford Internet Observatory, the University of Washington Center for an Informed Public, the Atlantic Council's Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab, and social media analytics firm Graphica. And all those groups hate conservatives and want to censor them. It set up a concierge-like service in 2020 that allowed federal agencies like Homeland Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, and State's Global Engagement Center. Did you know the State Department was censoring Americans through this process? I bet you didn't. To file, quote, tickets requesting that online story links and social media posts be censored or flagged by big tech. Democratic National Committee and the Common Cause and the NAACP, all left-wing groups, were also empowered, like the federal agencies, to participate. I guess we, I, they didn't invite Judicial Watch to participate. Not that I'm interested in censoring anybody. So all the emails show CISA was happening. We got the, these are doc government documents 
detailing their involvement in the so-called private partnership to censor Americans. But these are smoking guns. An October 2020 email from an EIP official, this Election Integrity Project Partnership. They redact the person's name and they redact the official to who it's sent to in our government. Signals the EIP's project uh, partnership with the Center for Internet Security, another government front. Literally, it's a government creation. It's a, it's a nonprofit that gets, I think, almost all of its money from Department of Homeland Security. Hello, CIS partners. It's like saying hello, Fed partners. Given that there is a caveat on the top right-hand side that says as of 9-17, the caveat at the bottom that says some states might allow later registration, and since the deadlines are changing to a later date, the EIP does not view this as misinformation and would not violate platform policies. Our DNC partners are shared onto this ticket so they are aware of potential confusion. So what's interesting is that this email that shows that they weren't going to pursue a particular line of censorship confirms that there was a censorship collusion operation between the federal government, this outside group, EIP, and the Democratic National Committee. There's the proof. In an October 2020 email chain, again, a redacted official, <laughs> so it's kind of, it's an awkward way of describing the name's person is, <laughs> the, the person's name is redacted. Uh, from the CIS, the Center for Internet Security, ask an individual who worked simultaneously for both CISA and Stanford, and whose name is also redacted, do you have a preference for which email I should use? Yes, preference for the Stanford one as I'm loading off my CISA work as we ramp up EIP. So Jordan's committee was able to get documents directly from... I think EIP and some of those entities, right? And we're getting these documents directly from the government. So we're Congress is separately drawing a picture that we're completing with our records and our lawsuit that is done separate and individual, uh, separate and apart from Congress. Now Congress hasn't released everything, so there are some more documents they haven't released. But I can go on and on telling you what these documents are. But there's proof positive that they were interfering in our elections in 2020. And the targeting, as Jim Jordan and the, DA and the Homeland Security Committee have uncovered from other documents, that the focus was on conservatives, like yours truly, Judicial Watch, etc. Although Judicial Watch wasn't on the list, but you're coming after me, you're coming after Judicial Watch, right? And I'm not going to back down. So we've got other lawsuits on this. Uh, we have, um, I think, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. at least eight, and I think there's more, I would say about 10, lawsuits over FBI payments to Twitter to do censorship? I don't know. 
Our, we have a lawsuit over, as I said, the censorship of Judicial Watch. We have this ongoing lawsuit. We have lawsuits on the COVID censorship. Well, I'll talk about that next. And just so you, uh, and I want to remind you, we have a great documentary out. It's on our YouTube channel, Rumble Everywhere, uh, judicialwatch.org. And the name of the documentary is uh, Censored. What is it? Oh, of course, I, you'd think I'd know the name of it. Censored and Controlled. <laughs> you know, the problem is we have all these books, and I always, uh, I shouldn't have all these books. But I forget sometimes the title of our own book, and I, I change the title every time I talk about it. So we have great books out there. I'm not going to give you the titles, but uh, 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 they're New York Times bestsellers. The most recent one is uh, Republic Under Assault. I, I encourage you to buy that if you haven't already. Uh, but this video is free of charge. Uh, we did it as a public educational uh, project that details the coordinated efforts by the FBI and other government agencies and big tech to censor and suppress information um, and engage in election interference on Hunter, top, on Hunter Biden's laptop, suppression of uh, COVID dissent. And we also uh, talk about the Twitter files, uh, Elon Musk Twitter files. So be sure to follow up there. Now, speaking of COVID dissent, we have new information coming out from the Surgeon General's office uh, showing the pressure, outrageous pressure, by the Biden White House and their Surgeon General, um, uh, whose name is Vivek Murthy, who uh, was pressing Facebook. In a, you're not going to believe some of the emails to censor people about COVID. And you can see in these emails, we filed this lawsuit in uh, January of the earlier part of this year. We asked for all records, including but not limited to you know, all the types of records you would have, such as text messages and memos and such, uh, relating to any efforts of Vice President, excuse me, Vice Admiral Vivek H. Murthy, MD, MBA, U.S. Surgeon General, to contact any employees of Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, Snapchat, Reddit, YouTube, Link, LinkedIn, Tumblr, and Pinterest, concerning COVID-19 or COVID-19 va uh, vaccines. On July 15th, 2021, a day that will go down in infamy in terms of First Amendment freedoms, uh, the Biden administration through Murthy issued a, uh, a memorandum uh, called Confronting Health Misinformation, uh, including um, Uh, a effort, uh, excuse me, the document included a massive uh, pressure effort to censor Americans. Make meaningful long-term investments, including product changes, redesign recommendation algorithms to avoid amplifying misinformation, building, quote, frictions such as suggestions and warnings to reduce the sharing of misinformation and make it easier for users to report misinformation. Platforms should also address misinformation in live streams, so they want to monitor what I'm saying right now in order to jump on you and intervene and censor, which are more difficult to moderate due to their temporary nature and use of audio and visual. Prioritize early detection of misinformation, super spreaders, 
So they're con- they're comparing American citizens who use exercise their First Amendment rights to disease-ridden human beings. Vicious. And repeat offenders. Repeat offenders criminalizing First Amendment conduct. Impose clear consequences for accounts that repeatedly violate platform policies. Amplify communications from trusted messengers and subject matter experts. For example, work with health and medical professionals to reach target audiences. Direct users to a broader range of credible sources, including community organizations. I mean, that's the closest thing to a normal recommendation from the censors in the Biden administration. Now, Murthy was the subject of this court restriction, I think that's been lifted, at least temporarily, preventing him from doing this type of activity anymore. The Biden administration currently can do this, or that's how they interpret their authorities. I love this stuff about labeling, because this this really sticks in my craw. You may notice on some of our YouTube videos, you I, I talk about January 6th here. There's going to be a label, if the past is prologue, de- uh, directing you on YouTube to a Wikipedia section, a Wikipedia, one of the least reliable sources on the internet about January 6th. And I think they still do it with COVID. Now, those I call that vandalizing our material with irrelevant links in a way that suggests that the material that you're seeing can't be trusted and you need to verify what Fitton and Judicial Watch are saying by going to Wikipedia. This is part of a plan recommended by your government. And so the records show that uh, Facebook senior officials were constantly trying to get on Vivek's good side. They called him Vivek. So immediately after this brief, this this uh, censorship document was filed, the next day, Nick Clegg, who's vice president of communications and global affairs at Facebook, emails him. Reaching out after what has transpired over the past few days following the publication of the misinformation advisory and cumulating cumulating today in the president's remarks about us. So you may recall, I don't remember the specifics of what Biden said, but he essentially was attacking Facebook and company for not censoring Americans. I know our teams met today to better understand the scope of what the White House expects from us on misinformation going forward. Boy, if that's not an acknowledgement that they consider the uh, the White House to be their master when it comes to censorship, I don't know what does. This is, again, confirmation of violations of your civil rights by the Biden White House and Vivek Murphy. Murthy, excuse me, our Surgeon General. And so the other documents show these constant this constant back and forth, uh, you know, basically begging Vivek, don't punish us. Thanks to, thanks for the time. Thanks. To the, they write a few about a week later. 
Thanks again for taking the time to meet earlier today. It was very helpful to take stock over the past week and hear directly from you and your team and to establish our next steps. We talked about the speed at which we are having to iterate as the pandemic progresses. By the way, this is in 2021. Just so you know, it was a year and a half after the pandemic began. I wanted to make sure you saw the steps we took just this past week to adjust policies on what we are removing with respect to misinformation, as well as steps taken to, to further address the disinfo dozen. They had a dozen accounts they were specifically targeting at the request of the Biden and White House. Incredible. We removed 17 additional pages, groups, and Instagram accounts tied to the disinfo dozen. So a total of 39 profiles, pages, groups, and IG accounts deleted thus far, resulting in every member of the disinfo dozen having at least one such entity removed. We also continue to make four other pages and profiles, which we have not met, which have not yet met their removal thresholds, more difficult to find on our platform. We hear your call for us to do more, and as I said on the call, we're committed to working toward our shared goal, our shared goal, goal of helping Americans get on top of this pandemic. We're going to reach out directly to schedule a deeper dive on how to best measure COVID-related content and how to proceed with respect to the question around data. And this is crazy. I mean, when they remove a Facebook group or, I mean, I, I think I'm, I'm I, I don't think, I know I'm running a Facebook page. I have a, but Judicial Watch has a Facebook page that has, guys, what is it, six, six point seven, almost seven million followers now? I have a Facebook page, Real Tom Fitton. I've got a group I run, Tom Fitton's old Judicial Watchy stuff. I mean, that's 200,000 people between those two pages, probably. So if they remove that page, that's 200,000 Americans who are, who are deplatformed in terms of COVID, practically speaking, having a place where they can get information. So you have Facebook desperately trying to get the approval of the White House by demonstrating that they got the message to censor Americans, and they went ahead immediately and did it within a week of the Biden gang pressuring them. Really terrible. And as I said, it's still going on, and it was just fully funded by the, uh, by the Republican-controlled House. These emails confirm Facebook censored Americans at the direction of the Biden White House and Biden's Sur Surgeon General, uh, their, their political operation. This is a massive violation of the First Amendment. I can't think of anything similar in American history in terms of the sheer breadth and volume of uh, the sheer breadth of the censorship and the number of Americans impacted. We have more information coming out on this. I know we have more fo more FOIAs on this and more laws lawsuits coming on this. So I don't know about you, I think the First Amendment's kind of important, right? And this highlights, by the way, our work here, highlights how Judicial Watch 
is America's number one civil rights organization. I'll say it again, Judicial Watch is America's number one civil rights organization. Whether it be protecting the right to vote by ensuring that elections are done according to law and the rolls are clean, etc. Protecting the First Amendment, highlighting and trying to stop government abuse. Those are core civil rights issues. Free speech, freedom of religion, the right to vote. That's what your Judicial Watch is doing. You remember that Biden White House cocaine scandal? I'm sure you do, right? That was interesting. They found the, uh, I call it a dime bag. I, I, I think I said a dime bag. and People online said, well, you don't know what a dime bag is. I don't know. It's, I, that's the, what I call it. It's a tiny little dime bag of cocaine was found inside the White House. And there were numerous reports as to where in the White House it was found. And it turns out, according to the documents we just uncovered, thanks to a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit, it was they were found in um, uh, the cubby hole, excuse me, there was a little lockers when you enter the White House. Let's say you want to enter the White House to visit the Oval Office. So you, you go through the doors, the Marines are there, Secret Service agents are all bunched around there, by the way. And as you go in on your left, there's a little ante room, small room. I mean, you, you, you know, two or three people in there, it's a bit of a crowd. And you're supposed to place your cell phone in there. And they found the Coke in one of those little lockers that you, you, know, you put your cell phone in and take the key and keep it. And Judicial Watch um, had seen what went on with this, with this cocaine scandal. Uh, there was obviously a big to-do about it, and the Secret Service pretended they couldn't find, I shouldn't say pretended, concluded they couldn't find or they didn't have enough evidence to figure out who did it. And most people presumed it was a member of Biden's family, uh, given the security situation at the White House that it's almost impossible to get any uh, drug quantity like that into the White House unless you are able to bypass security or have the necessary um, protection in order to uh, get it through without being stopped. And uh, so we asked for documents under the Freedom of Information Act, and we finally got them. And they include, for the first time, photos of where the material, uh, where the cocaine was found. And there you go. That's the little cubby where you put your cell phone, as I talked about. That's the little dime bag. That's what I keep on calling a dime bag. I'm going to keep on calling it a dime bag. Description of where it was found. What else do we have there, guys? Another picture. These are all from Judicial Watch's FOIA. Okay, now let's, let's stop there. So that's the West Wing lobby entrance. So you enter that lobby and you go through those doors. To the left is the ante room almost immediately. Let's bring back that picture there. If you enter those doors, to the left immediately is the little room where the cocaine supposedly was found. That's what at least the pictures indicate. 
So it's a sm- you know it's a small area, and I want you to imagine just past those doors. Typically, there are three or four large Marines, Secret Service guys looming. <laughs> so they're watching everything that's going on. Uh, so I'd like to know how that coat got there. And uh, what's interesting about the, um, and then if you go through, there's a receptionist on the right once you get through that doorway as well. And you kind of wait out front. There are some couches and to the far and to the left again, you go down the hall. And I think it's like a, a, a 30 second walk. You're in the Oval Office. So uh, this is as close to the center of power in the world as you can get. And they don't know how it got there. Now, the documents also suggest, and maybe I should have led with this, that they destroyed the cocaine. Let me get to that part. A a July 2nd incident report indicates the investigation lasted 12 days and that cocaine and sodium bicarbonate were identified within the item. Also, DNA test results did not identify an individual responsible for the placement of the item within the west wing of the White House complex. The report states that on July 14th, the cocaine was, quote, placed on the property evidence book for destruction. So they're going to destroy the evidence even though they haven't figured out who brought the cocaine there. I mean, isn't, isn't it just a cold case? Why would you destroy the evidence? I, I don't know what, to be fair to the Secret Service, I don't know what their rules and procedures are here. But I've been around the block long enough working at Judicial Watch for 25 years, believe it or not, and having watched and analyzed numerous federal administrative and criminal investigations, that this, is an un, this would be an unusual move for this material to have been destroyed. And inappropriate. What I also found interesting about this, these documents, and I want to go back earlier because I, I wanted to talk about the disruption here. This isn't a joke. I mean, A, they didn't know what the substance was immediately, so they had to evacuate the White House. And not only that, but it disrupted the entire city because the documents show, I don't think I have the quote here, the documents show that uh, they closed 17th Street and I think they closed um, H Street. So 17th Street, by the way, is a road that goes, I'm trying to think how to describe it. Uh, if you've been to Washington, you, you know 17th Street, if, if, if you're facing the front of the White, the White House facing north, 17th Street is on the left. And it's the major exit way for people exiting downtown to get out of it. Excuse me, to get out of town or come into town. So closing 17th Street is extremely disruptive to the city. And I think 8th Street was also closed. 8th Street is a block or two north past Lafayette Park. Lafayette Park was where all the communists were trying to kill uh, Trump in 2020. And then they were trying to storm and the communists were trying to get into the White House and seemingly destroy the White House just a a week or so ago. as well, so that's where people congregate in front of for protests and such. And it's a nice park; it's Lafayette Park, honoring Lafayette, our the French hero who helped America win the Revolution. 
and Eighth Street is beyond that. So that's a kind of a, that's kind of a hike away from the White House, as far as I'm concerned. But if that was closed, and I think it was at least in part, I mean that that's that's the main way to get uh, from downtown to Capitol Hill. So it's terribly disruptive. So the city was shut down in part over this little bag, and they can't figure out who did it. And we have the documents, as I say, um, our FOIA obtained them. Uh, the, uh, the records were also given to the Daily Mail, who also did a story on this. These photos and documents detail the disruption and expense of the Biden White House cocaine scandal. Few Americans, and I dare say you included, buy that the Biden administration can't figure out who brought this cocaine into the West Wing. Indeed, the lack of documentation about the investigation of who is responsible is striking. So what's interesting is that supposedly they were interviewing and analyzing all these people who were in access, had access to the West Wing at the time. I don't have any of those documents here. I don't know where they are. I think this is the last... From what I recall, I don't think they plan to give us anything else. So, was this a non-investigation? It sounds like it to me. Once again, Secret Service being abused and misused by Biden uh, to protect him from the consequences of yet another scandal, in this case, the cocaine in the White House. So, there you go. Well, I'm going to talk about the Fulton County case next time. I don't know if I'm going to have time to talk about the Fulton County case. There's a lot going on there. But there's a big case, and I'll just close with this. There's a big case in Fulton County. A federal court judge has allowed claims uh, uh, to proceed to trial concerning the security of the Dominion court system, the Dominion voting system that Georgia uses to run elections. And the court presented in letting the claims go to trial, which is a significant move, evidence that uh, the system can be gamed. So that's the summary. I'm going to get into more details the next time we visit. So, But in the meantime, uh, so that's a big deal. And I encourage you to look it up in the meantime. I have a, a great tweet on it. Maybe we can have a link to the tweet below, and we'll follow up uh, the next time we're together again. Uh, next week is Thanksgiving. I want to wish you a happy Thanksgiving. Uh, Judicial Watch uh, is uh, thankful to all of its supporters, especially around this time, because we can't operate without you. Everything I, everything we talk about in terms of our lawsuits, our investigations, uh, frankly, this this operation here, where I'm sharing this information with you, is as, as a result of uh, Judicial Watch supporters. So I encourage you at this time of Thanksgiving. Uh, to say thank God for America. We obviously thank thank God for the blessings of our uh, uh, that are, are apparent in our individual lives, for our family and friends and such. But I'm thankful for Judicial Watch, and I encourage you to support Judicial Watch uh, with additional support if you're currently a supporter, uh, but to support us directly uh, because I don't know where America would be without Judicial Watch. The deep state hates us; they want to destroy us. They want to censor us. They retaliate against us. But we're able to stand strong thanks to your support because we know you're there to back us up. So with that, I wish you a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday, and I'll see you here next time on the Judicial Watch Weekly Update. 
Thanks for listening to the Judicial Watch Weekly Update with Tom Fitton. For more information, visit www.judicialwatch.org because no one is above the law.